3: Well, thank you all for coming out at uh, this time of uh, uh, the evening. We had a, uh, in Beirut, when we had a seminar, we had a speaker a little while ago, and uh, he produced a really quite big, fat book, and uh, he was asked to give a little account of what it was. Um, And we also had some fairly uh, vociferous Iranians at this meeting, Uh, and uh, they got up at the end of his um, talk. We gave him you know, not too much time to talk about it, but about 15 minutes or so, and he gave a short account of this. And the Iranians got up and said, look, I'm terribly sorry, but we don't find your arguments at all convincing. And uh, he turned around to them and he said, have you seen the size of this book? He said, what do you expect in 10 to 15 minutes in terms of what it is? And I now understand a little bit how he feels as to trying to deal with a subject which is inevitably rather complex in a very short uh, presentation. So I'm just going to try and give a a few ideas rather than to give you an argument, argued uh, presentation. And then, um, uh, as I say, I'm really happy to talk about anything that's um, either happening or talk about what's going on in the Palestinian context or in the region. Uh, more widely in in, in sort of the nitty-gritty of politics. But first of all, to stand back a little bit. And uh, coming into London, it's quite striking. I arrived uh, from Beirut at the weekend and uh, picked up a magazine, which had a feature on the uh, Iranian Revolution, uh, marking the 30 years of the Iranian Revolution. Uh, And I opened uh, the first article uh, and it started off by saying that, more or less, the Iranian Revolution was a, a little hiccup that had uh, occurred in the uh, economy of Tehran. There was a little tension between the Shah and the Bazaar merchants, and really, the Iranian Revolution was a, a sense of economic uh, dissatisfaction. And I just was astonished, really, that 30 years on from the Iranian Revolution that it is still seen as uh, resulting from a a minor hiccup uh, in the economy, or else it's seen as a sort of a whimsical reaction uh, to modernity. People who are incapable of understanding or managing uh, modernity had taken to Islamically-inspired violence in in reaction to it. Uh, And still now, there really doesn't seem to be very much, in my experience, clarity about what not only is the Islamic uh, revolution, but also within the broader sense of the Islamist revolution, of which the Islamic revolution is of course uh, a very key component. And I think one of the reasons that we, we seem to have no real clarity about it is in, is in a way that the, uh, the revolution was seen in Iran or interpreted quite widely uh, as almost a discontinuity in history. It was one of those blips in history. It didn't seem to fit the pattern of a a Western idea of a revolution. There was no class warfare. Uh, People just mobilized, and in their millions, and it didn't really quite fit the precursors and ideas that we had about revolution. So in a sense, it's almost uh, what it was all about was uh, uh, er er erased, so in my my starting point, I would like to try and say what I think the islamist revolution is uh, is, is about, uh, and of course, um, in doing this, uh, I happily acknowledge that there are probably as many definitions as there are Muslims about what the the revolution is is, but in trying to get to something of meaningful of its essence, uh, I, I would say that the revolution is essentially uh, a passionate refusal, a passionate determination to accept the understanding of themselves and the understanding of the human being and the world in which we live uh, that is dominated uh, by modern uh, secular Western consciousness. Uh, In other words, it is about not only a refusal of, of modern consciousness, the modern consciousness that dominates secular world, um, but it is also an attempt to assert uh, alternative values, uh, alternative values uh, for the human being and alternative values um, for how they see and understand the world in which human beings uh, I- interact. Uh, the, the sense of the, the revolution, I think, sprang uh, from, of course, the, the roots of this Western modernity to which this is a reaction. And by which I mean, essentially, uh, the two pillars of Western modernity that are being challenged. Uh, And the first one, of course, uh, was what was called uh, the Great Transformation. For all of us in Western Europe, the, the 18th century, and particularly, of course, here in Britain, the great transformation that took place, that arose out of Adam Smith and the economists' idea of the invisible hand, Uh, the need to produce efficient and effective markets, markets which, by intersecting together and the action of the invisible hand, would produce the maximum uh, human uh, material and um, uh, economic benefit for all, and to which, clearly, in order to achieve this efficient and effective both economic and political marketplace, Uh, that required the subordination of other uh, political uh, and social objectives. Of course, it was not something uh, that actually achieved was achieved spontaneously. It came about through a massive uh, effort and massive intervention of central government and by governments to bring about the social and uh, political and organizational community changes that were necessary to produce a society in which uh, markets could be said to work efficiently. And in producing those changes, the social changes, indeed even those of the authors, as many of you will know, like Adam Smith and others, had real qualms about what it might also produce. And what it also produced was bringing Europe, uh, on many occasions, close to the brink uh, of social disruption and uh, unrest and even revolution because of the consequences that that flowed from uh, the social consequences and the community consequences that flowed um, from this grand transformation of Europe. The second element uh, of the the grand transformation uh, was essentially uh, the the attempt to try uh, to see um, a natural order emerging from society. A, a myth that had been strongly held in in Europe, from really from uh, certainly from the earliest times, was that order and this is the great Anglo-Saxon myth, if you like, that order arose spontaneously in society, that came about naturally. It emerged out of disorder. It emerged out of the disorder and chaos of competitive jostling, of competitive. Uh, uh, jostling for position in society that somehow uh, a natural order would emerge from this. Uh, and this natural order was closely linked in, th- in thinking, of course, to a Christian idea of the, again, providence and in the invisible hand uh, coming in to bring this natural order about. And, and this, uh, an idea, I'm, which all of you will be aware, of, was taken up strongly by the the Puritan uh, politicians and it emerged in America um, through many of their thinkers, pain, and it emerged in the American Constitution. And this whole idea of the natural order that came about from from human goodness was one that ultimately produced, if you like, the jostling and competitiveness of the American uh, American state and the American institutions that were intended to provide checks and balances out of which this natural order of competition uh, would take place. From that emerged the ideas, the nation state, human rights, most of the ideas of modernity uh, that we have uh, today. It's a view, it's an idea, it's a thought that has had incredible power and has dominated our thinking uh, and our world for for some 300 years Uh, and it is also Just as it brought the tensions and crisis uh, within the West, uh, it brought Islam to the brink of disaster. By the 1920s, Islam was essentially uh, almost holding on by its fingernails. The caliphate had been abolished. Uh, During this period, there'd been enormous, if you like, uh, disasters that had uh, affected it in terms of the great transformation of Europe that had been brought to Muslim societies. Been brought to Muslim societies, I I emphasize, been brought there uh, with the best of intentions, to help the Muslim world develop and become modern and progressive and to industrialize. Uh, But the consequences were very great. In that century, in the century until the 1920s, from the 1820s onwards, in the western part of the Ottoman Empire, Uh, Nearly five and a half million Muslims were ethnically cleansed from those areas as part of the process, as part of the great uh, move to create nation states, nation states in the western model of a a unitary, ethnic, vertical type of identity with a strong centralized government. Uh, We saw in Turkey the attempt to modernize the sick man of Europe and of course young Turks uh, interpreted the idea of the nation-state in a in a very in a very direct and a very strong manner. What it saw, of course, was part of this process of making a new nation-state involved the deaths of nearly a, a million Armenians, uh, many many Assyrians, uh, many Greek Muslims were swapped into uh, Greece. Uh, uh, eventually, it it also produced. Um, the destruction of the identity of the Kurds and finally the demonization uh, by Atatürk of Islam. Islam that was the bar to progress. Islam which was, uh, in his uh, uh, description, uh, unable to cope with modernity which was a joke in terms of of science and progress. And of course the same things were happening uh, in Iran and Egypt. And Islam was really effectively holding on by its fingernails at this time, pressed on one side by the secular, the enforced secular reforms uh, of their societies that were taking place in terms of this great transformation. And at the bottom, the young people being drawn towards Marxism and away for Islam. Uh, It was a real crisis, a crisis and a huge problem that faced them. Uh, And like others before them, they felt uh, the only way to find a solution uh, was to try and embark on a journey, a journey to try and find a new self, to develop a new self that would deal with and find the solutions to this problem. It is something very similar, in some respects, to what happened to Christianity. Uh, At the end of the Dark Ages, which was hanging on in this part of the world, in Western Europe, more or less hanging on after the departure of the Roman Empire, hanging on in a few monasteries in Western Europe, uh, fragile and also uh, feeling itself in a crisis and a need uh, to invent a new self. And just as Christianity went back to its roots in order to find the way out and to find a solution, so Islam uh, in this period after the 1920s uh, faced a similar crisis uh, and was looking uh, to go back to its roots and of course uh, in doing that it, it, it went back and looked for not only um, religious insight but it looked for political insights back in the Quran uh, the Quran as uh, all of you will be aware is not a, a philosophical do- document, it is not a political document, it does not give a uh, uh, an ideological program in any way. Uh, In fact, it is uh, quite negative about theological uh, reflections in it. It tells people, and it's very clear, that uh, what it is is actually no more, it's not a new religion, but it's simply a reminder, a reminder to all humans of old truths, old truths that we are all aware of, that we have known, but somehow need to be reminded that for human beings to live together, they need to treat each other with equity and with justice uh, and compassion. And it also uh, demanded that human beings should behave to each other in this way. From the religious perspective, uh, Islamism understood uh, that this is actually the way to faith, Is actually not in a and a moment of, if you like, Abrahamic conversion, uh, as God uh, commands him to put down the knife, but comes from a slow process of actually living those values within a society, of actually practicing and behaving with compassion, equity, and justice, but more importantly, or as importantly, actually experiencing people actually experiencing people practicing those values back to those people. And that an understanding of God was something that came, uh, an understanding of transcendence was something that came from a process of living in such a community on a daily basis and, and changing and changing and transforming their attitude and their behavior and ultimately their thinking and their knowledge of the reality from actually living in their society. And this insight is uh, at the heart of the the political revolution of of Islamism. And effectively what it is, uh, and it is an important insight, because it is a complete inversion of the Western great transformation, what they are doing is the opposite of the great transformation. So instead of uh, putting as the overriding priority, the main object, uh, to political and social uh, objects that of market liberalization political market liberalization with the individual as the basis for as the organizational basis around both around which both politics society and economics I- is based they put as the prime aim of politics is to construct a society that practices that is based on the principles of equity, justice, uh, and compassion uh, in the society, to which it was quite possible to have markets, but that they had to be subordinated, <coughs> along with social and other p- political objectives, to the, great, to the big priority of creating a society in which human beings uh, acted uh, in terms of moral principles, because that was the way, as they understood it, it it was possible uh, to find the full potential of of human beings in the process. Uh, But the Islamist revolution was essentially more than just this political inversion, and it is more than this political inversion because it sees human beings uh, in a different understanding. It's looking at human beings as a different way not as human beings split into component parts. Uh, If you like, uh, human beings that are simply a summation or an aggregation of of their social aspect, their psychological aspect, their chemical aspect, their neurological aspect, and studied and divided and held in that way, but by seeing human beings as essentially a unitary and single whole, and to look at them uh, in, in this aspect. Uh, it sees human beings also directly in a different relationship uh, with, the, with its objects, with objects in the world. It, it attempts to release human beings from the impersonal abstract and distance relationship between the knower and the known, between the I and the object that is discussed. This fundamental breach in thinking that took place with Islamist intellectual tradition when the West moved down towards the separation of the I, the self, from the object and, ad- and added the process of the not only the separation, but the I that does, the I that acts, the I that dominates and the I that controls uh, a nature that is divided and separated and segmented in, in this way. Uh, it is, uh, of course, in terms of a, a form of uh, thinking, uh, not something that is uh, 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 that has its parallels, separate parallels, of course, in Western philosophy. And what you see in terms from uh, Western philosophers, from Nietzsche and from Heidegger and others onwards, also the same sense, the same concern about what is the consequences of this segmented and this divided aspect of life. And you see, and I think what is interesting also to see, that the aspects of what Islam would call the soul, um, of course, in its uh, Western translation of the psyche, you see the same aspects about the concern about what happens to human beings uh, when they are so compartmentalized and seen in this way in terms of psychology, both of Jungian psychology, but also in archetypal uh, and depth psychology. This, of course, is in a different tradition. It's in a secular form of thinking, but this is a type of thinking that has already been in Islam, in their intellectual tradition for nearly a thousand years, uh, but has been and has been revived as part of the elements uh, of the Islamist revolution. What does that mean in practical terms? What does it actually mean in terms of politics? It means that this has enabled movements, movements like Hamas and Hezbollah, but particularly also in the Iranian Revolution, to move away, if you like, from deterministic history, to look at uh, to look at symbols and to look uh, at the idea of uh, myths and narratives as a means of political transformation to give them new meaning, to give them a new way in which to create a, a different uh, inner subjective reality, a reality that allows them, if you like, to escape from the dominance of, uh, or the absolutism of a scientist approach, an empirical approach uh, to, to the world and to thinking. And in fact, to allow them to start thinking deductively and intuitively, but more important, uh, imaginatively. And to use myth and symbol again as a process, not only for escaping this type of thinking, but also for bringing about social and political change uh, in their society. I recall when I spoke to one of the leaders of Hezbollah and asked him what was the most important thing that came from the Iranian Revolution. He answered without hesitation, for the first time in 200 years, we could think for ourselves as Muslims. And this was the liberation that was brought about by the Iranian Revolution. So in short, that what we are actually talking about in terms of the Islamist Revolution is actually not either a a clash of civilization because quite clearly what we are seeing, if you like, that these elements of thinking are already in the Western society. The the forms of concerns that I've described that Muslims are raising, of course, are part of Western philosophy, Western psychology, in a different form. And mo- Muslims all accept that Western thinkers have stood above this fray. But it's equally, and I think it is clear that at the root, that this is about ideas. The revolution is essentially about ideas and about a new way, or if you like, a revived uh, thinking about what is the human being and how he relates to the society and to the reality in which uh, he finds himself. I'm sure many of you will be saying, but that's not what we see in our newspapers. That's not what we see on television. We see people who are dogmatic and literal, dangerous and and violent. Uh, and of course that's true, uh, because there is another current uh, in uh, the revolution, if you like, in the Islamist world, and this is the opposite current, the current of the counter-revolution. A current that is reductionist, which is anti-philosophical, anti-rational, uh, which is also... Anti and strongly and fiercely anti-heterodox in its thinking. It is narrow and it is dogmatic. And this is another current uh, that is present in it. What is uh, the paradox of this situation is that this current that I'm talking about, this narrow, anti-heterodox, dogmatic, literalist, reductive current uh, has been the West's allies uh, in the project to constrain and contain what it sees as revolutionary Islamism. For nearly 50 years now, uh, the West has tried to use uh, a form of what is a really a, a non-political form of, of Islam. And it is a genuinely, it is a Puritan form of Islam that is uh, apolitical in that they don't believe in participating in elections, national or local, a form of Islam that is uh, is uh, embraced by many people who are both pious and sincere in finding a reform. And they have been used and been used by the West for the last 50 years, first of all to contain Nasserism, then to contain Marxism, uh, to contain the Soviet Union, uh, to contain the Soviet Union and bring it to its knees in Afghanistan. That uh, has been used to contain Iran, uh, and it has been used now in Iraq in order to contain uh, the Shi'i uh, government uh, in Baghdad. The form of uh, uh, Saudi-orientated Wahhabism is in its essence, uh, quite rightly, an apolitical current. Uh, And the West has uh, accepted that the Saudis uh, should and have encouraged them uh, to spread much of the the writings and thinkings and the authorities uh, of of this uh, trend of thinking across the world. But it is also a type of thinking uh, that when it has been used for political purposes, when it has been used in order to contain or constrain other movements in the areas. Uh, under these pressures has fragmented and segment and has formed segments and dissidents and further dissidents and dissidents beyond that. And as it has done that, uh, it has tended to migrate and to migrate under the with the anger to a dark and brooding period of Islamic history, uh, of the Mongol invasion of Islam and for them to see the parallels today with what happened when Baghdad was sacked and when the Mongols established themselves uh, as the caliphs of the world, of the Muslim world. And from that position, they migrate towards other authorities, authorities who are both political, very political, who are fighting this Mongol invasion, who didn't accept the rule of the Mongol uh, caliphate, who refused to accept the Shi or the Sunni um, Sufi uh, trends in Islam? Who saw all of the uh, all of the varied elements of Islam that was not literal and not directly uh, related to the written word, as they understood it, of the authentic uh, Quran and Hadith, were heretics. Heretics that must be purged from Islam. Sufis, Shi'i, even Muslims who just worshipped at uh, their graves had to be cleansed, if necessary, by by violence. Uh, These are the people who have been the Western allies for the last 50 years uh, in this process. Uh, And the paradox, of course, is that most of the, the dangerous groups that we are frightened of and that we see, the Zarqawis, if you like, of Iraq, of course, are all splinters are all dissidence groups from this essentially puritan and reformist uh, element uh, uh, of Islam. It is I would argue the attempt to put this template of moderates versus extremists has paradoxically uh, put the West on the wrong side of the divide. Like all civilizations as happened in the West there has always been a divide between the philosophic between rationalism, between philosophy, and those that espouse a a very literalist and a narrow, reductive view uh, of the world. And that is very true uh, of Islam. Islam started essentially uh, in terms of having a strong Platonist, uh, rationalist approach. And it was in reaction to that that it became very literalist in some aspects. And what is the paradox today is that the West has put itself I believe, on the wrong side of the divide. And that it sees the extremists and and, uh, identifies the non-dogmatists, the non-literalists, those who accept reasoning and thinking in philosophy. The movements such as uh, Hezbollah and Hamas, uh, the countries such as Iran. These are the extremists to which we use those apolitical movements that, under pressure, migrate back and become not only political, but political in an extremely dangerous and violent way uh, in order to try and circumscribe uh, these elements. So why then do we see movements like Hamas uh, and Hezbollah and the other mainstream, the overwhelming mainstream movements, why do we see them using armed resistance in those circumstances? Well, I think that the only way to, to, to look at it is to go back and understand what was happening in what I call the great refusal, the great refusal that took place in the 1920s. When they look about them and saw what was the consequences, they could only see the way to, find a, to recover themselves, find a self-esteem, to find the psychology to move out of a sense of a defeated people and to go back to their roots and find a new way was firstly to resist, to resist the paradigm uh, that they found so dangerous and irreconcilable uh, with their own thinking. And of course, Islam does have a strong tradition, a tradition of fighting in defense of Islam. That tradition uh, was from the very beginning and the Quran was very clear. In one sense, you are expected to act and show generosity and compassion, and you were also expected to show service uh, to others and to care for others less fortunate. But it also said, very clearly, that you had to strive actively, daily, in the interest of of supporting justice uh, and Islam in the world. And that this was both a personal struggle, but it was also a struggle that was to be pursued uh, by the sword in defense of Islam. It was only many, much later in the 8th century, in the 800s, that the, the doctrines of jihad became uh, written and the were, doctrines were, were, were produced at that time. So uh, what we are seeing now, if you like, is a different form from these movements, from what I described earlier in terms of the literalist form. The roots of this are powerfully located in the feelings of occupation, occupation, and the sense of the powerful feelings that come uh, from the sense of uh, alienation in their society. But what Hamas and Hezbollah and others see, uh, the resistance, is, no, is more than simply just a defense of Islam. It is also part of a process of trying to find a universal Muslim view uh, that puts values ahead of politics that tries to repoliticize culture not in an individual as an individual lifestyle choice but in a collective sense and to try and find and build back a sense of esteem and psychological confidence those israelis who have met uh, hamas mostly in the interrogation room uh, of israeli uh, jails have noted the difference and have noted the difference of conduct of these people. Interrogation is no difficulty. They admit what they do freely and regularly. They say very clearly, this is what we did. Uh, they also show no remorse, and they are very plain with their Israeli interrogators in saying that as soon as they're released, uh, they will commit the same act again. Uh, they see the Israeli interrogators will be, say to you, They see their period of imprisonment not as a punishment but as another opportunity uh, to show their values uh, and their commitment to community, albeit inside an Israeli prison and to pursue the psychological war. So it is a sense of a different form, a very different form of resistance from the resistance that we saw and which I tried to describe in terms of those uh, who are pursuing a narrow view of hostility and anger against fellow Muslims and against the world as a whole. And what I would like to conclude on is to say there is a a huge gaping difference between these two trends uh, in Islam, both in terms of the idea of resistance, but in the terms of what they're trying to achieve. And the paradox is uh, that we, and the west have been engaged partly in the creation not deliberately in the best of intentions perhaps the creation of those very elements and movements that we most fear and feel are threatening to our life uh, just as we have uh, chosen to uh, isolate and deem as extremist uh, and uh, uh, enemies uh, those that have the opposite characteristics who do espouse the idea of reasoning and philosophy and thinking in their way of Islam. Thank you very much.
2: Um, thank you very much for that very, uh, really fascinating, there's um, so, so many ideas there. It would uh, take a long time to um, ask you about all that. I, I will not do that. I, ju- I wanted to refer to something you said at the beginning, which is very interesting, which is the idea, um, the, the, um, the fact that identity, the identity plays an important part in the way that uh, Islamists uh, have behaved, the a search for identity, and identity obviously threatened, virtually destroyed by uh, the West. Um, and I'm wondering whether, do you see a parallel between uh, the fact that at the, uh, at the end of the Dark Ages, uh, European Christians in search of defining their own identity use the Crusades uh, as an, uh, 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 one of the strongest motives for the Crusades was uh, this search for a European Christian identity um, and I'm wondering whether do you see a parallel in reverse as it were, that that Muslims looking for uh, uh, their own identity are doing it in f- in a, in a discovering it by hostility to uh, the Christian West.
3: Yes, thank you. I I think um, what I was uh, suggesting, and I I just want to add a qualification, that I think it's very important to understand that these journeys in discovering of a new self, of course, are prolonged affairs. And I'm not for a minute suggesting that there is... a anyone has arrived at the outcome of this, and I think it will take time. And everyone is clear that what has happened is not either a model or is the end result of this process of trying to find a new self and interpret themselves in a way that can transcend, if you like, the sense of disorientation and and defeat and the sense of uh, loss that they experienced in the 1920s. Uh, and, of course, even in the, the revolutionary, if you ask the Revolutionary Guards or those who took part in the Iranian Revolution, they would be quick to say that what is, exists in Iran is no reflection of what they imagine the revolution would be and that it needs to be rethought and re-taken further, if you like, uh, re-examined in and taken further. I, I, I think that I would say that much of what happened, there is, a, is, as you say, a strong parallel with what happened in Christianity. I think there is a, a is a difference. And of course, not only did uh, Christianity partly reinterpret itself in, in that way in a journey, but of course, the first uh, Crusades actually were more in the form of pilgrimages, genuine pilgrimages. It, it was only later uh, that they became, um, with certain myths that came into Christianity about the Antichrist and In a sense, it was also a search for trying to find, to bring about, it was a very eschatological process. It was an attempt to to bring out and and force the emergence of the Antichrist, and then this would lead to the great battle in Jerusalem that would bring about the salvation for the whole world. So there was a slightly different process that took place. Although, again, at that time, Christianity reinvented the myths and reinvented itself in terms of Charlemagne. And these talks about a grand Christian and a grand uh, emperor of of Europe. And also identified itself in contradiction to the Byzantines. The Byzantines were these effete, clever, sophisticated, but duplicitous people. Whereas the new Christian saw itself very much as a a more muscular, pragmatic, uh, uh, direct person than these rather sophisticated and effete Byzantine Christians that were existing at the time. So I think that the path that the Islamic revolution or Islamic search for a new self is taking is slightly different. And I think also, it is also about trying to find, and it is deeply buried in, in this idea of trying to find a new understanding of the human being and to try and find a new understanding of how, what that means. For a human being today and living in reality. One of the things that I think is uh, why I think, you know, why I mention this, why I think it is important that just now, as now in the West, we all face uh, some of the sort of questioning about the Western narrative, what it means both in economic and other terms. Uh, there are insights, perhaps, uh, that can be had. Uh, they're not insights that are exclusive to Islam because, as I say, much of these the thinking, and many of the thinkings, when you look at the, someone like Martin Heidegger's ideas of being and time and being, they're very similar to the thinking that you'd find in the works of Mullah Sadra, for example, in terms of uh, what that means and how that can transform people's sense uh, of their subjective reality and move to a different political position from that of being trapped in a, in a very severely empirical, if you like, paradigm. Islamists have no problem with empiricism or or scientificity, uh, providing it's done in its proper position and providing it doesn't lead to the segmentation and this compartmentalization and this division, both of the human being and the world that we encompass. Part of it is a philosophical element to get back to a sense of the unity of everything that surrounds us and our direct connection to that unity that we are in. And that does have really profound political implications, not just philosophical implications, in terms of these movements and how they use that in terms of myth and ideas to bring about a political change in society.
0: Having just returned from uh, Israel and uh, the Palestinian territories, one of the the many paradoxes that struck me is that in that region, both amongst Israelis and amongst uh, so-called Palestinians, let's call them Palestinians, um, is, is is a mixture of or very well. I think that well, they are Palestinians, but in, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, Just a a bit okay, surprise, <laughs> no, but I mean, w- by which I mean, residents of a so-called Palestine, okay, um, is is a mixture of very long memories on both sides and very short sight. The administration of the. Of the of the, of the relationship and the conflict, do you think that the trajectories that you describe historically um, are considered in the negotiation of the relationship by those running the Israeli state um, in their dealings with the Palestinians and vice versa by um, Hamas in their dealings with uh, Israel?
3: Uh, I do. I think that they are, are to a certain extent understood, but I mean like all politics uh, today, they get overtaken by the short term. Politics has become, for all sorts of various reasons, uh, much, um, uh, much shorter in, in its, if you like,
5: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
3: It's, uh, it's Horizons. Uh, we've seen this over the, over the years, and politicians are only interested in, now in, in the immediate and the coming elections. And uh, this is a process that I think, um, particularly in the West, relates to certain thinking and ideas about the nature of power. Uh, that have uh, emerged uh, in the 20th century in terms of political philosophy, so that it is, uh, you know, very much a sense of that the question of managing power is one issue, and the issue of morals and other values are a matter either for moral philosophers or for, or, 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 or indeed for, for religious experts. In the words of uh, people like Carl Schmidt and these uh, circle around the Chicago School. But I mean, that has also been emphasized by the way in which we live in a you know, 24-hour news cycle and uh, the media. So yes, but I do think Israelis think very much about the longer term uh, and are aware of it. Some of them, not all of them, but many of them do. Uh, and also, in my experience, talking to, 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 to um, the Islamists uh, they are always thinking. And one of the reasons we see what they are doing now is because they're looking beyond uh, the immediate future. I mean, from the outset, if, uh, to just explain, in, 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 uh, early in the process of the American election, it was quite clear that the Islamists were not as, if you like, euphoric as you. I found when I came back to Europe, the people in Europe were about what might, how it might affect them, at least. They understood that these problems in, 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 in the region are deep problems uh, that no one is going to be able to resolve. There are these huge, if you like, clashes, and what I would describe almost denials on the part of the West. How to deal with a, a reemergent Iran, quite apart from the nuclear issue. From the first Gulf War, it's apparent that it's going to be in this case the ability for various historic reasons of of Israel to be able to make peace within within the region. I'm not saying this in terms of a moral judgment. I'm saying that what Islamists perceive. And the consequences, therefore, of what this might mean of the West if it continues with a policy of assuring Israel's uh, unilateral right to uh, uh, a destructive ability for all of its um, potential enemies in the region about the rise of Islamism, uh, about the economic and, the pol- and, and indeed, the social problems that are probably going to bring about a huge revolution uh, in this region. So they understand and didn't expect uh, this to be changed. They didn't actually expect. They did see, and all of them, when I spoke to Hezbollah and Hamas, very clear that they detected and saw change in attitude in the public in America. They realized that, and they saw the same in Europe. They didn't believe this would necessarily translate into change policies towards them. And I think they were right in that, probably. They were very cautious about that. But they have tried to work politically into that mood in Europe and America, uh, but internally, not in terms of talking to America, but in changes within the politics of the region. So what we have seen in terms of the sort of Doha uh, processes, which have tried to bring in and restart conversations in the region, is part of a process which they hope will allow, if you like, politics to begin again after a scorched-earth period of, of 8 or 10 years. But they do recognise that this may not work, and the dynamic may be back to conflict. In 2 years or 18 months, we may be back to some sort of conflict in the region. But they are also looking to what is on the other side of the conflict, because they realise that sometimes... You cannot change really ingrained ideas until you can actually step beyond the next stage of that conflict, until people are really ready to make, if you like, the radical choices or the radical changes. Change the paradigm. Until that paradigm changes, you're stuck, if you like. And I think most of the Islamic leaders at the moment see themselves as stuck in a process with all these impasses in the region, and that perhaps they have to wait for that event We hope it's not going to be a Sarajevo event of the the 1914 that unleashes something monumental, but at the moment, they feel that they are waiting for that. that will allow a new politics to to emerge. So I think people are looking beyond just the the very short term. And how far? Well, you know, the Middle East, it's very hard to have a crystal ball uh, that that extends too far. Uh, in the future. But everyone knows we are on the brink of monumental change uh, in this region.
0: In your analysis of the contrast between Wahhabism and this, more, um, this much broader, and more universalist uh, Islamist revolution, where do you place the Muslim Brotherhood which arose in Egypt in the 1920s and still seems to be the most active resistance to the pro-Western government
3: in Egypt? Like, like all definitions, one has to be careful of being uh, too, um, uh, too black and white. Uh, and I would, But I would say that the Muslim Brotherhood, for the very large part, does exist in the side of um, the non-fundamentalist in the pure sense of it, in the sense of, of looking and uh, 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 of not taking a literalist. The the Muslim Brotherhood ultimately, if you ask any of the leaders, will say uh, how do they see uh, their course of action, uh, would say that Islam only gives them principles uh, and that it is up to the human being to interpret those principles to the best that he is able using reason in order to try and find the right course. They may get it wrong or he may make mistakes, uh, but that there is no exact path in it. Uh, That is of course quite different to the view of the Wahhabi views that say that every word must be taken literally and enacted in terms of its literal and precise meaning, Uh, which is very different from the sense of looking through those words to deeper meanings and levels. And indeed the Quran itself says there are seven levels of meaning uh, to the words that are written there, the last of which is understood only by God. Clearly it was not, many Muslims see it as, as much more of a, more, uh, a process of actually uh, looking beyond the meanings and a, a Gnostic process of understanding the, the meaning of it. Um, so I think that they do lie on the side, if you like, of, of the reasoning uh, Islam. But, of course, that there were elements, certainly at the beginning, and there were connections that took place with Wahhabism, the beginning that has given it its element. One of the things that I think we're seeing and one of the things that is quite clear is the way in which we have pursued the West uh, this very mechanistic model of moderates who are supported and extremists who must be weakened and marginalized uh, has in fact largely hollowed out particularly Sunni Islam. It has is displaced it and, and removed it and pushed it if you like um, to, to uh, lost its center of gravity. Uh, and I think that this is something that we, uh, one can see. There's very little leadership. The authority has been fragmented and shredded by part of this process. Now, there are many people, and we work also with Salafists, and not only with groups like uh, Hamas and Hezbollah and others, uh, but I think there's a feeling even amongst the Salafists that much of this is the bubble of, of Saudi money, and, uh, and, and, and funding. That in Lebanon at the moment, uh, there is nearly, the Saudis are planning to spend nearly a billion dollars in the run up to this election. And a lot of this will be heading towards some of these groups that I described uh, and who are always fragmenting and moving and some of whom have actually moved to being supporters of, of Zarqawi and, uh, and others from the very apolitical uh, uh, strain of it. I think that when this bubble bursts, we may begin to see a little element of uh, the, uh, the former, if you like, center of gravity coming back into Sunni Islam. But in this period of void, in this dangerous period, I think what we're going to see is a bitter and deep struggle now uh, for, the, for the soul, if you like, of Sunni Islam, uh, a struggle between Saudi Arabia, who is determined to try and create a, a a front, a Wahhabi front, uh, that will contain and will be there to challenge Iran and Shi'ism and, and movements like such as Hezbollah. And I think it's going to be a bitter, and already is a bitter and bloody struggle that is going on uh, between the two. And at the moment, there is something of a void uh, in the center of what is Sunni Islam. Uh, Shi Islam is different, and it doesn't have this... Uh, this void, and the movements that I describe, like Shi Islam and uh, Hezbollah and Hamas, have not shown these tendencies or these proclivities to to um, to fragment te- to fragment and to they are not fissiparous in the same ways that Salafism traditionally and always has been, um, producing more and more dissidents that move and migrate to different positions.
5: I think a lot of people will hear what you're saying as there's us in the west who are kind of obsessed with these things like money and capitalism and then there are these nice guys who are kind of you know these islamists who are into far more kind of essential values and i think you'll find quite a receptive audience for that kind of thought in this country amongst liberals and i think that's potentially quite a counterproductive thing unfortunately because you know, the way there's a danger of caricaturing a liberal capitalism. Liberal capitalism, yes, it's responsible for these guys sorting coke in hedge funds and buggering the economy up, but it's also responsible for this very pleasant evening, you know, being surrounded by diverse views, having a discussion, women coming out without their husbands, uh, <laughs> Okay. And, and and you know, being surrounded by lots of different books. And Having, I sort of study Islam in Britain, and one of the problems is, I think, that people brought up in this country are not given an, in, an inspiring alternative to Islamism, young Muslims. And if we could make out an inspiring case for liberalism, then I think we may have fewer tensions in this country.
3: I understand exactly what you're saying, and I find it always quite a, a strange thing that... Uh, I certainly didn't intend and didn't uh, say that of course the West has no values. I'm just saying that they are based on a different uh, tradition and a, and, and, and a different understanding of what is the uh, the origins and their values. And of course this is, goes back to my first comment about you know trying to explain a book in, in a very short time because the other part of the book is about Western thinking and the roots of Western thinking towards uh, Islamism. Uh, but um, there wasn't really time to deal with that because it is very important to look at the the roots of Western thinking. But what I am trying to suggest to you is not that, uh, and I was very careful, I I think, and certainly tried, but I may have not done it sufficiently, to say that all this thinking is going on about the future and how we live in in the future and how we return, if you like, to um, the question, the moral principles uh, of politics uh, is only an Islamist thing. And I said that much of the thinking in philosophy, particularly in psychology, I- is breaking you know, grounds. It's not exactly the same, but it's going along and there are resonances. That's why in Tehran they read Heidegger and they read Habermas and others, because they recognize uh, that there are important elements in, in, in the way in which the West is thinking. And I don't see this in this dichotomous way. Uh, In fact, I don't think many Islamists, they're all aware, if you like, that actually Western civilization largely emerged from the translations into Latin uh, of the, if you like, Arabic texts that brought science and knowledge and medicine and astronomy uh, to the West that started this process of, uh, if you like, uh, the great, the Renaissance in the West. But that itself had come through Christian Syriac translators who were borrowing on Greek philosophy that during that process the, uh, the West had, had lost during the Dark Ages and then refound in the Iberian Peninsula when these Arabic works of uh, Ibn Sinna and others, when uh, Ibn Rushd were translated and infused the West with the ideas and the thinking. So it's always been a process of where ideas come from. And all I am trying to say is that actually the converse that the Western impression, I think, of much, or I'm not saying of people here in this room, but for many people, is is that this is a criminal, violent um, uh, eruption that is taking place that is actually anti-rational, and does have no, uh, it's commonly described as uh, a reaction against modernity, that it's irrational, that it is something that has no basis in ideas, and that it is something that is only to be dealt with uh, by military force. And what I'm saying is that actually, you know, uh, to try and provoke the debate that is actually about ideas and about thinking about the understanding. Now, uh, uh, that doesn't mean that one side uh, has no morality in this. And what I am saying is that if we start to think about that, we might actually approach Islam in a slightly different way if we start to, to open the debate about what it's about. But equally, very importantly, is that perhaps as as we face certain constraints in our thinking, that maybe some of these insights, just as they are helping in Iran at the moment in Tehran, might also stimulate or catalyze other thoughts. Not that it'll bring Islam to the West. No one believes that it'll do that. But this is the process by which people, or societies, all of whom at times reach certain steps where they get constraints in their thinking. How do you step beyond that? Either you go back to your roots, or you look outside for ideas about how to move on. Maybe some of the ideas that Islamists have about economics and things like that, they may not be exactly appropriate, but maybe they will trigger or act as a catalyst to fresh thinking also in in the West. But all of us are facing the same question, is what is the purpose of politics? What is politics for? Is it just simply, if you like, for people to, for, for material interest to accumulate it, or is politics about moral and political ends? And I would think many Islamists, uh, you obviously agree with the latter, and I would think that many Islamists would agree with you. It's a question of how you get there, and you may have a different way from, from them about how you, if you like, define the basis and, and the thing. But the most important thing is actually to get and part of the reason for writing this is to get the the understanding across in in the greater public, it is about a debate about what is the purpose and what is the definition of politics and what is politics trying to achieve. It goes back to the very roots of that idea. And that is not something that I think is widely understood or accepted in either Europe or America
6: now um well through the, well through the sixties in most of the countries you were talking about Iraq, Palestine, lebanon, Iran, algeria uh the refusal of Western domination, colonialism, imperialism uh was expressed largely through uh, secular nationalism, uh, often with a left wing stamp, and I think one could argue that that uh these currents of, um, of opposition uh, were much more open to ideas of liberalism, socialism, critical Western values, than uh, even the most progressive of Islamist currents today. Um, and so my question is, how do you account historically for the eclipse of left secular nationalism in much of the Arab and Muslim world uh, by, by Islamism um, in the period after uh, 1967. I mean, as, as you well know, if you were a young Lebanese Shia in the 60s, the party that you would have joined would have been the Communist Party. Hezbollah didn't exist. Musa Sadr hadn't appeared on the scene. So if you could provide perhaps more of a historical account, I, I, it, it must lie in something other than the authenticity of these values in these particular cultures. No,
3: I, it doesn't lie in uh, a, and, uh, and I tried to answer uh, the, the, the earlier question and saying, um, of course, there are self-righteous people in every society and every religion who claim to have you know, uh, certain values that are, uh, are theirs, and uh, I'm not trying to suggest uh, that there is a authenticity and correctness. I'm just saying... That as part of the revolution, that there was a, a determination to assert other interpretations uh, of, of the values and not to uh, claim it. Um, essentially, uh, the, the 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 nationalist project, if you say which, which clearly, I mean, uh, had such an enormous power and strength. If you uh, uh, and was very appealing, Yang Xi, if you say, became very much attached. A, a uh, I think um, I think it 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 failed, uh, or at least um, there were two elements of it. Uh, firstly, um, of course, and, and very clearly, it failed in 1967 uh, as a structure, as a political structure in the Arab world. Um, uh, I might, if I was to be to move into a sort of a Western mode, say that there were economic aspects to it, but. Uh, I don't want to do that because what I want to actually say was that some of these, the thinking and the ideas that emerged clearly in the Iranian revolution was not simply just about uh, you know, a better way of um, producing more goods and satisfying uh, the material needs. But what was important that the revolution did do was it accepted that actually the, the need for the day-to-day care uh, of the material needs of the human being were a call on Islam that Islamism, and you see this in the, clearly in the ideas of Fadlallah and you see it in Shariati, and all of the, the thinkers in, in the Iranian Revolution, was actually that the need for uh, religion, not simply to leave this, you know, the benefit to take place in an afterlife, but Islam was responsible. Fadlallah would say that uh, Islam, there is nothing wrong with an Islam that is both rich uh, and is powerful in fact that that is a good thing. So there was a huge changes that were taking place, if you like, in terms of, uh, of Islamism. And what really happened, and what I think actually brought about the change more than anything else, what was the central issue that, that, that changed in Iran was that Islam became dynamic. It was no longer a prisoner also of, if you like, a passive view, of a static view, of a quietist view and became a vehicle for social action, uh, for, if you like, economic change, as it affected people in in society. So it became, after a long period uh, of being essentially uh, a static and uh, constrained structure, what the revolution did, by drawing on certain narratives and themes and expressing them in different ways, was turn Islam into a very dynamic, Uh, and a very forward-looking thinking. Uh, But, of course, even within that, there were the same tensions that took place. Imam Khomeini was someone who is portrayed, of course, very much in the West as a dogmatic and narrow theological dictator. Uh, He was also one of the greatest philosophers in that period, but the philosophers of uh, Irfan, of Gnosticism, of intuitive uh, thinking, of... Uh, an intuitive and imaginative, imaginal, I think Corbin would describe it, thinking that was taking place. That when he went and uh, when he was teaching in Kong, uh the more literalists and the conservative of the ulama uh, insisted on purifying the glass out of which his 11-year-old son uh, would drink because he taught uh, this type of dynamic philosophy in their view. So I think what I'm trying to also say is that uh, we do not recognize very clearly the dynamism, both uh, social and economic and political, that was coming out of those movements. Because we tend to look at the Iranian revolution very much in terms of precursors and influences that must explain it, um, and therefore nothing new happened, and it was, if you like, an extension of uh, you know, as I described at the beginning, you know, economic problems or uh, anger with the Shah. So I think Islam became dynamic, and that was in the Iranian element. Uh, and that was the pull, if you like, at the same time that the Nationalist Project was was, if you like, failing in terms of being a narrative that seemed adequate to the way Muslims were viewing their future and their lives.
5: Can you say something about... What the views of the more rational Hamas uh, people might be towards a, a future state? What, what sort of state would they like to be involved in? Is it is it, a, is it an Islamic state? Is it a more diverse state? What? Yeah, can you just say something about like that?
3: Uh, I will uh, uh, try. I mean, the, I mean, it is a a, a large subject. Uh, But I remember a little while ago, I I had written, some time ago, I'd written a paper uh, which I showed to the political committee of Hamas. Uh, 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 I'd been asked to write a a description of their ideology or their thinking. And I'd written this paper and I asked them to see if they believed that it was accurate and it was correct before I um, uh, circulated it. And um, they came back to me and they said, you know, this is fine, but why did you put this? What made you put this? What I put in it was that they might uh, establish Sharia law uh, in Pakistan. And they said, what on earth, why do you say that? Why do you think that we are going to establish Sharia? Have you any basis for that? And I said, well, that's what I thought you might be intending to do. They became quite angry with me, and they said uh, very clearly, they say, Look at us. Look at how we dress. Look at what we, how we act. You see me, and you know that my children go to a mixed school, boys and girls educated to, together. Most of my colleagues live like that. There is no assumption. I cannot tell you exactly what we will do when there is a Palestinian state because those decisions are for the future. But there is no reason for you to think that we are going to do that. Personally, and for many of my colleagues in the leadership. I believe that we have got to try and find a way in which people can opt. In a similar conversation, uh, a little later on, uh, we were talking about this and, and what it would mean and what it meant, and we were very clear, and he said the ambition of Hamas is not to have an Islamic state. It is a state is to have a state with Muslims in it, and there is a big and important distinction in what we are trying to do. We believe uh, very clearly in that one ambiguous element of the Surah of the Quran which says there is no compulsion in religion. We believe if there's no compulsion in religion, then Palestinians are free to belong to Hamas or they can belong to a secular movement like Fatah. Clearly that follows from what the Quran says. If that is the case, also the lifestyle in which people choose must also not be the subject of compulsion. And that that is what we intend to try and implement in terms of the Palestinian. We have to recognize that there are different views, different ideas, and different lifestyles. Uh, within every society, there will be a debates about those. But that is, I can tell you, the views that have been said to me very clearly on a number of occasions by the, uh, the top leadership, uh, those that form the political committee uh, of Hamas. We will see in practice... Like many things, there's a, in politics there is a dynamics that can pull people, if we see in, in different ways from the the course of events. But I think that that is something that there is a the genuine desire to try and implement.
4: Thank you very much for was a very interesting and, and rather I think attractive view of the different sorts of Islamism. But I'm afraid, like the Iranian uh, interlocutors you were talking about right at the beginning of your talk, I disagree with almost everything you said, and. I think the, there are a number of perspectives that are, that uh, that I think that are, well a couple of points that I'd like to just test you on a, a little bit. The first is that it seems to me that the Iranian revolution was a profoundly nationalist revolution in all sorts of ways and you've sort of rather disregarded that element of it and it remains uh, the Iranian revolutionary movement remains fundamentally a nationalist um, uh, discourse. But the second point is, and your your humanizing or humanist view of the Islamist, shall we say, people exploring philosophically what they, uh, how they're going to live their lives, you've sort of edited God out of it. And the, surely the fundamental thing that defines Islamists and Muslims in general is that the, what you should be doing as a man is finding out what the will of God is and obeying it. It's not up to you to make your own judgments about what sort of lifestyle you want to lead. And surely this is the fundamental difference between the sort of lifestyle that I suspect most people uh, in the liberal West believe in, where you are actually exploring as a person how you want to live your life and what your values should be. If you're an Islamist, it's not up to you. It's up to you to find out what the will of God is. And this uh, this is surely the big fundamental philosophical divide. Or not.
3: Or not. Um, It will not surprise you that I don't agree. Um, I do think that what you say, I mean, is of course right that there is a nationalist element. And everyone would say in a a country like Iran, uh, I mean, clearly the revolution had elements of nationalism. It also had elements of cultural, if you like, traditions, cultural traditions going back to Zoroastrianism uh, too, uh, as well as Islamism. Uh, And of course, I mean, in the purpose of what I was set out to do in the purpose of the book is not to write a history of the Iranian revolution. It was the purpose of the book and the title is to try and get the essence of what is the Islamist component of of revolution. But of course, there's elements. element. Hamas is a national liberation movement. So nationalism is part of that. Um, There is nationalism in all of this. I think there was a change... Some years ago, when uh, and it is striking that still in the West, I'm surprised because usually either I get um, sort of questioned on that or or then people say, ah, yes, but you haven't explained that they all believe in the Ummah and that therefore they don't accept nationalism. Well, uh, I think what I am saying is that there has been uh, quite clearly, and I think I would date it very much back to what happened in Iraq, that Iraq shifted the thinking of many Islamist movements in a much more nationalistic direct direction. The idea that there was, if you like, a, there was no role for nationalism, which was held in movements like the Muslim Brotherhood at that point, was dissipated by, by what happened uh, in, in, in Iraq. Uh, on the idea of um, uh, whether Uh, the simple answer is to get um, the will of God and to adhere to that point of view. Um, uh, Clearly this is um, precisely what I was trying to describe in many senses uh, the very literalist and the reductive view. But there is an alternative view, and there are, and this is certainly the one that you will find in in Shi'ism, and you will see it expressed in many of their philosophers, uh, that actually the first step in order to understanding who you are or being able to understand this is to understand yourself uh, and to understand the human being in his self. Uh, Only as a a first step to understanding yourself can you begin to understand your relationship uh, with the rest of creation. And from that, uh, you can begin to understand Uh, the nature uh, of what is God and what is surrounding you. But this is very much, uh, and this not only the Sufi, but the Gnostic tradition uh, in Islam, which is a very powerful one. And um, if I describe uh, some of the sort of leaders of the uh, Iranian revolution, I've already mentioned uh, Khomeini, who was actually one of the leading philosophers of Gnosticism in Iran at that time. Uh, Khutub also Uh, was to a certain extent a Gnostic in his following of uh, Al Arabiya uh, in terms of that thinking. Uh, Even Ali Shariati who was very westernized if you like she uh, was also a mystic in terms of his thinking of a a dynamic and intuitive form of Islam uh, which was based on a human being responsible for using his reason uh, together with the insights and the intuition uh, uh, that uh, the texts and the other authorities had uh, for establishing for himself an understanding and moving through uh, the layers of, uh, if you like, reality to approximate to God. So it is not, in a sense, a simple process of, you know, what are the rules? What are the? What have I got to do? Um, although quite clearly there was much more of that in Sunni Islam, because Sunni Islam did, in 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 a sense, um, particularly. Uh, pay more attention to the outer aspects of of ritual uh, and in performance as being sufficient, and pay less attention, which came and, and I tried to indicate very much out of the the tradition of Ibn Taymiyyah's reaction to the to the Mongol invasion that we had to go back, we had to clear out all these other aspects and go back to a purified literal type uh, of thinking. And at that point, he wrote his fatwas condemning philosophy and condemning um, reasoned um, introspection on these issues. And of course, that had a huge influence in, in the Salafist groups that I've been describing. But there is a very different and a very deep culture, uh, both in Shi Islam and parts of Sunni Islam, uh, which is exactly not the type of, of, of as you described, simply uh, attempt to find the will of God and then to follow it in a, in a literal and direct and dogmatic way.
7: Um, it's been quite interesting. I just actually just to refer to everybody. I come from the Middle East and I'm finding myself a bit stuck between a uh, collective understanding of most Muslims are there or we can, as women, sit here as um, without our husbands surrounded by books. It actually happens in Damascus on a less scale, or I've heard it even happens in Iran. People do have a survival mechanism. But on the other hand, I also want to go back to the idea of uh, the eclipse of uh, call it nationalist Arabism, call it people who just wanted. Now, a lot of people in the Middle East and in in, in the Arab world call it as a third way of living. We don't want to be pro-the West seeing it as the pro-Western Governments that has been proven dictatorship worse than anything else, but also we don't want to live as like we follow one leader, we obey everything that's been said. And I, I just would like to hear your thoughts about the role of dictatorship uh, all around the Arab world. It started with Nasser, and definitely now in Iran, in a sense, and all around the Arab world with that political Islam form and the rise of it. Is it true to say like Allah has been proven to be a bigger dictator than anything else, and that's the only way people could resist, people find an alternative to what's going on, an answer, a humanity, a sense of dignity? I don't.
3: Um, well, there are sort of about three questions in that <laughs> tucked into hiding within in the first one, and the point, of course, that you you make, and I. Uh, I don't think, and I think it's important to to say, I mean there is more thinking about these issues. There's a huge amount of thinking that is going on uh, throughout the region and people are doing exactly as we're doing here and sitting and looking at it. I'm quite often asked, I, I'm asked quite, not often, but from time to time to participate in internal meetings of, of Hezbollah when they consider things that are not directly political and you have not people that are the top leadership but that are the ordinary members of, of Hezbollah, and they're talking about things like citizenship in, in Lebanon and what it means and what are the implications from that. And I'm always astonished at how much they have read about Western philosophy. Not only do they know their own, but they really do know what is the Western philosophy about the nation state and the ideas of citizenship. And I find that astonishing in, in the sense that these these you know this interest and this excitement about ideas is present. So I think there are lots of things uh, that are in common. Uh, I think that what uh, you say has got a a lot of truth. And, you know, in my experience, always, you know, the pendulum swings as people try and express. One of the reasons I I keep thinking, you know, try to say to it, as uh, Muslims are trying to express a clear identity, find themselves, uh, find a new self for themselves, Of course, it's a natural tendency to express that and assert it quite strongly because you're trying to contrast it, if you like, uh, with a different identity to show that it's not just the same, that it's not uh, uh, similar. Uh, And I do believe that, as I say, that many of these ideas, there will be a cross-fertilization of ideas and thinking that will take place now Uh, as it did in the 14th century. And it's already taking place. I mean, people look at the possibility of um, uh, Khatemi becoming the next Iranian uh, president. Here is a man who is deeply interested by uh, the Frankfurt School of Critical Thinking, who's deeply interested in in a scholar on on Habermas. Of course there's going to be an interaction, and of course the pendulum will probably end somewhere in something that is rather uh, not... At either end, but something that is in the middle, and that's the point of what I was saying. That this is a, a process, and it's far from finished. It's actually quite fragile, and probably quite early on in this discovery of the self uh, that that uh, that is taking uh, that is taking place. Uh, uh, the question of um, you know uh, dictatorship in the region is, is seen by most Islamists. Uh, to be the, the, the legacy of the colonial period. Uh, and uh, uh, whether you agree with it or, or, or not, but the sense of what happened at the end of that period, um, the installation of um, r- the regimes and the support for them in Saudi Arabia and Egypt and other places, uh, is seen to be part of that process. It is an element in which uh, the, some of the Salafis are, are very explicit in saying that the only way you can start, and they say to movements like Hamas, we see, we told you so, there would never be a chance for an Islamist uh, to be empowered anywhere in the region, uh, and that the only solution is to burn it all down and to start from scratch. Um, it is a very small and a minority view. Uh, but yes, there is a strong sense of resentment which is compounded by the by the sense that this period of globalization has seen in real terms the economic consequences for for those that earn their living by the sale of labor, declining for 10 years in real terms. The number of people that are in absolute poverty in Egypt and throughout the region uh, are huge. And at the same time, they've seen a smaller and smaller super elite become mega rich and join the circuit of the international uh, rich people. Many of the middle class are sort of segmented between some who are fighting to stay out of uh, the poverty and a few that have jumped to uh, 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 great riches. So I think there is a real sense and the economic crisis that is coming is provoking uh, many Muslims and many people uh, to look for new solutions, new economic solutions uh, for the for the crisis. And they don't see those solutions. That The the model of the nation state that they've had for the last, you know, since the 1920s has been an adequate model uh, for solving the economic and social problems they now see themselves facing in in the years to come. So they're looking for internal solutions, internal models and solutions. I think one of the great tests that will face the Islamists, and I been saying this to them for about two years, I believe in the in the years to come, is can they provide a real economic and social vision for the economic crisis uh, that I believe is coming for them? And what will it be? So I think, you know, we will see many of these trends unfold in the years to come, and who knows where the center of gravity in this process will will finally lie. But, you know, the purpose of all this was actually not to sort of discuss uh, the merits or or to look at um, the influence of nationalism and Marxism because that's really very well treated in the West and very highly treated subjects at great length in books and what was uh, seemed to me to be missing was an understanding and a recognition of the importance actually uh, of what actually was and as I started this really if you look at much of the Western press you find really very little reflection of that Element and that current of, of thinking in it. When I was uh, in Tehran a couple of months ago and I asked uh, the academics at uh, in Tehran University, many who participate, some have participated in, in, in the revolution, if there was a single book that they knew in the English language that summed up what they understood to be the, the spirit of the revolution, they were very quick to say, not one. So, on that basis, all this is is an attempt to try and actually widen the debate beyond, if you like, the the views of um, uh, nationalism and socialism and other, uh, what they might see as part of the Western uh, domain of thinking. To say that there is another thinking, it's not necessarily threatening, it's not necessarily damaging to the West, but there is another thinking that's going on and maybe it's worth understanding or at least listening or at least uh, hearing the insights that they see um, from the circumstances and from their period of difficulty that they've emerging from, and to see where that may lead and what type of future and vision for the future that they see for Muslims ahead, just to listen and to be able to understand and, and to know what they're talking about.
0: Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on
1: iTunes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.